Sportsnet today. Listen on the air, online, on the Sportsnet app, and always on your smart speaker. Sportsnet 960, the fan, Calgary. It is a Calgary Hitman game day. The Hitmen are at the Dome taking on the Regina Pats. Nothing substantial about that. Just Connor Bedard playing in this one. Uh, the place is basically sold out. So if you don't have a ticket, the only way to catch it is Sportsnet 960. The fan pregame coverage starting at 6 o'clock. Puck drop is around 7 o'clock. To break that one down and a whole lot more from the prospect world, very pleased to be joined as we go inside hockey for Calgary Co-op by Jason Bukala from Sportsnet.ca and the Pro Hockey Group. Jason, how are you today? Do we have Jason? We got. I'm here now. Hey! hey deep in our ear there, so uh, <laughs> I didn't know if I was back in my old call waiting days because I'm old like that, but uh, <laughs> no, I'm here. I'm here. Uh, all right. Well, nice to have you. Thank you for, for doing this today. Uh, we have quite the event happening in, in our city tonight. As Connor Bedard um, and, and his barnstorming tour rolls through, the Dome is basically sold out. Everyone here to see Bedard. We all know he's the number one prospect going into this draft. Is there anything left he has to prove? Like, are there any more boxes you would like to see him check uh, before he, he makes his way to the National Hockey League next year? No, not really, to be perfectly honest. I mean, this is pretty pretty special, this tour, as you're calling it. Uh, it reminds me a lot of when Sidney Crosby was running through the Quebec League several years ago and, you know, selling out buildings all over the place there as well. And we're lucky to have this. Uh, Calgary's lucky to watch it tonight. Uh, Regina is, you know, a middle-of-the-pack type team. They're not, uh, they're not a juggernaut by any stretch of the imagination, but... You can't take your eyes off the dart. You know, it's, it's like a car accident. You know, you always do the double take. It's uh, this kid's special. Um, I don't know what there is left for him to do. He, he's won everything on every, on every level at every stage. Um, I think that by the end of the year, depending on what happens here, you might see him suit up for Canada at the World uh, Hockey Championships playing for the men, depending on what his agency wants to do. Because uh, as we all know, sometimes, you know, injuries happen and you don't want to roll your your athlete out in front of men maybe because of that uh you know that could happen i guess but listen it's electric every time he touches the puck something happens it's it's just fun to watch for the, the organization that does end up with him um i i think like we are seeing teams in the, the tank for bedard sweepstakes and that this isn't odds are he's not going to be that final piece to push a team over the star uh, over the, the the line or whatever he he's going to be part of a, a bit of a build We've seen a couple of teams have some issues with guys who felt kind of can't miss, like Lafreniere has stumbled so far with the Rangers. For whatever team that gets him, how important is it to like how important is it to have a game plan to build around this kid once you do bring him into your organization? Really important, absolutely. It's a great point. You know, you're going to be like right now. If we were looking at the, if the lottery ball dropped a certain way today, we'd be looking at you know the Columbuses, the the Anaheim's. Um, you know, these types of teams, obviously Arizona's in the mix, Chicago. Um, trust me when I tell you that they're all already putting in place for whoever ends up on their doorstep come June in, in Nashville. They're already simulating what their um, their their plan for the, the next player is, is going to look like. And clearly, if it's going to be Bedard, there's a massive trickle-down effect if it ends up being Bedard. First of all, like you're seeing tonight in Chicago, or pardon me, in, in Calgary, pardon me, um, the building's full. Um, there's going to be an uptick in, um, in in Anaheim, any of these buildings. Like, trust me, the fans are going to be uh, wanting to come out and watch the player. That's going to be one thing. 
um, surrounding himself or surrounding the player with some veteran presence and some other guys that can not only complement him, but also protect him along the way. Um, that's going to be a real, really important. All those teams have a lot of cap space, so they're going to be able to add around him to allow him to develop at his own pace and, and hopefully play to his identity. The last thing I'm going to tell you guys is that going forward, um, as that team starts to turn the corner and you've got a star player like this in your lineup, um, you're going to start to see more interest from outside free agents. And, you know, people are going to want to gravitate to play for teams like that um, when they have star players. This isn't, this isn't a Lafreniere type of comparison. This isn't even a, um, you know, even a McKinnon type of McKinnon's an outstanding player. He's, 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 you know, top five player in the national hockey league, but we have a Bedard is a player who can literally be like, what Crosby was when he went to Pittsburgh and have that type of all around impact and uh, an uptick for the whole organization. It's, it's an anomaly. Chatting with Jason Bukala uh, in for inside hockey for Calgary co-op. Callan Gary's is the only family of products curated for the taste of Calgarians. And you'll only find them at Calgary co-op. I'm Peter Klein. He's Aaron Vickers. Jason, I don't know if you can specifically quantify this, but just how far ahead is Connor Bedard from the likes of Adam Fantilli, Matt Vimishkov, Leo Carlson, Zach Benson, so on and so forth. This isn't a Heischer versus Patrick situation, a Lafreniere byfield. He is so clear-cut, but how can you even measure how far ahead he is from the rest of the class right now? Yeah, it's a, it's a great it's a great point by you it's impossible to do it i mean i'm not going to sugarcoat it it's just it's just so far ahead of everybody else i mean even at the world juniors with uh, high-end players suiting up for other teams that were high draft picks uh, across the league he was still you know light years ahead of all those guys at the world juniors so it's difficult to quantify it um the the gap is it's just immense it's kind of like you know, I've used the analogy before. It's kind of like Tiger Woods and the rest of the field at the mm-hmm. Masters in his prime. You know what I mean? It yeah. was like, well, it's his to lose. Type of that. It's kind of like that with Bedard. It's just, it's not even close. You've been around the draft for 20-some-odd years now, whether it be director of player personnel for the Sioux Greyhounds, a scout with the Nashville Predators, or director of amateur scouting with the Florida Panthers. What do you make of this draft and the top-end talent as a whole? I really like this draft. I think that it's one of those years that, Let's say you're a team that's just going to be on the outside looking in or making that drive to, to, you know, settle into one of the final wild card spots. But let's just say you just finished just outside of that. So you're in like the 17 hole or the 18 hole. Um, everybody hates usually year over year. You don't like being in that area. It's like in the middle of the first, you call it the muddy middle. There's enough depth in this draft though, guys, that teams all the way down into the mid twenties, I would suggest are going to get some really high end players. So it's one of those years that um, uh, it is an anomaly. Uh, if we compare it to the years gone by, like last year's draft, without uh, I always say like Snuggerud went I think 22nd over last year. He's one of my favorites. But guys that went between 20 and 32 last year, generally speaking, would definitely fall out of the first round if we put these two drafts beside each other and lined up the first 25 guys in this draft. They would push guys from last year's draft out of the first round. So. It's got a lot of depth. It's exciting for uh, it's exciting for the game, to be honest with you. So, as a former director of amateur scouting, would it be blasphemous if you're a team maybe in a wild card spot or just out to trade away a first round pick in 2023 to try to increase your playoff chances? Yeah, if you're just if you're just hanging on, um, I wouldn't be trading away my first round pick. Uh, definitely, it wouldn't. 
I mean, definitely it's going to be lottery protected. It's interesting to see how Vancouver yeah. massage their deal, you know, with Horvat. Um, I thought that was smart on both for both teams, to be honest with you. Um, but if I'm, if I'm, uh, you know, like the flames are just on the outside right now, they're kind of hanging on to that wild card slot and they don't have a lot coming through the pipeline right now from past drafts. Um, they need to secure this draft capital in this draft and not trade out their first or second round picks. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't have the appetite to do it. I'd have to massage it some other way. In conversation with Jason Bucala on the Atlas Pizza and Sports Bar guest hotline, brought to you by Atlas Pizza and Sports Bar, using the same secret recipe since 1975. Dine in at 6060 Memorial Drive Northeast. Takeout or delivery at 403-248-3344. Uh, shifting the, the focus to the, the pro team in town, the, I guess the NHL team in town. We have two pro teams now. Uh, the, the Calgary Flames. There's been a lot of talk about some of the, the young kids getting into the lineup and getting a, a few more cracks at it with the, the Calgary Flames. Uh, Ruzichka has, had, has been on and off. Pelche kind of feels like he's starting to, to kind of get his legs underneath him uh, a little bit. How difficult of a, a balancing act is that for an organization where the Flames are competing for a playoff spot, you want these kids to have some opportunities? It, it seems like it would be a delicate balance for, for teams in this spot. It is. It's absolutely delicate balance. Um, it's uh, it's not a fun conversation to have behind closed doors. I can tell you that right now. Like, Coaches don't want to groom players at the NHL level to be NHL ready. Like when they arrive and they put the Flames jersey on, the expectation should be that you're ready to go. So you've earned that right to put the jersey on. Now, you know, it's not my job to coach you up and teach you how to do it at the level. So when you start referring to guys like Ruzichka and Palce, I personally think that guys like Palce um, and Ruzichka, like Ruzichka had a nice run at the beginning of the season. I don't yeah. know exactly what happened. It seemed like the, I don't know if it was lack of opportunity all of a sudden, or he got back to some of his, like Aaron, I think you would remember like in his draft year, he had some, some ebbs and flows, yes. you know, where his, 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 um, his detail would really kind of fall off the map for a week or two. Well, again, you know, you lose a coach's trust in the NHL when that happens. So maybe that happened. And then it takes a big rig like that time to kind of reset and get going again. You don't have time at the NHL level. We got to win every night or try and get a point every night. So the only thing I would say about Pelche, and I'm happy to hear and see that he's getting a little bit more of an opportunity. Um, this kid's earned it. Uh, he's young. I get it. But uh, he's not just a point producer. Like, he plays hard between the whistles. He always has. Like, when he, was a, when he was developing in Moncton back in the day, there was nights I went in there, and I'm thinking, like, kids, just take a little bit of a, your foot off the gas because we don't need you doing that. We need you to score. We need you not to block a shot or, or not to be so much of a, a little bit of a rat to get under the opponent's skin. Some of those things will give him a chance to play in the NHL beyond his goal-scoring pedigree. It's guys ahead of him in Calgary that let me down more than these kids, if that makes sense. I don't think they're getting enough out of other people in their NHL lineup who seem to be getting the bulk of the ice. And that's where it becomes problematic, and that's where the conversation gets really dicey behind closed doors. With those conversations, um, it, it does seem like sometimes there's a bit of oil and water when it comes to the, the prospects the Flames have and the style of play that, that Daryl Sutter wants to, to utilize out on the ice. When you are uh, out scouting players and putting kind of draft lists together and stuff, how much do you factor in the, the current coach uh, understanding best case scenario, you all win five Stanley Cups and everyone's there for 10 years and everyone's happy, but <laughs> more often than not, that's not necessarily the case and the player's usually there longer than the coach. Um how do you kind of manage that whole situation? 
So I don't manage it at all in relation to the coach. Um, I manage it in relation to the general manager and the president of hockey operations vision of where the team's going um, moving forward. There's a lot of moving parts before a complete roster falls on the doorstep of your head coach. If we think about it, you've got draft and development. You've got college free agency, European free agency, regular free agency, trade scenarios in the summertime. There's so many moving parts. So, my job is to um, select the players that um, um, answer the bell for, for the, the general manager and the president of, of hockey operations. Here's what they're looking for. You know, Jason, we just want the best player in this slot. We don't care if it's a, a goaltender, defenseman, whatever. We'll manage the asset. Just get us the best player in that slot. Fine, that's what we're going to do. Our staff will put it together. Boom, we, here's the best player. We get to the fifth or sixth round, and, you know, you got a uh, – well, Uyghur, when we drafted him in Florida, mm-hmm. like we identified some things for him um, as a seventh-round pick that we thought gave him a chance. So uh, it wasn't even that he was the best player per se, but he had certain skill attributes that we thought would give him a chance. So your regional guys, five, six, and seven in the draft, those rounds, your regional guys will be passionate, and you'll break it down based on certain skill attributes. But the top four rounds – best player that fits the uh, direction the team's going in. And that's set by the president and the general manager. I never, I can't draft a team based on the coach. It's impossible. You mentioned Uyghur and he is obviously a success story from the Florida Panthers, as you mentioned, being a late round pick and blossoming into what he is now. But let's say a first or second round pick that gets drafted that doesn't develop, doesn't blossom into that, you know, top six forward or a top four defenseman. From your vantage point, what goes into success or failure between the moment that player is drafted to the moment that player doesn't reach that potential? Is that a a draft bust error? Is that a development bust error? Where does that sort of fall in between the the scope of those two things? Well, the first thing is that as a director, it should fall on my on my feet first. I mean, because I'm I'm leading the room, and again we have to hand off a player uh, of high-end pedigree. We have to hand him off to player development, but he better be, you know, quality enough that they can work with whatever the player is. So the first thing you always have to do is look inward. So I look at myself, like, what could I have done better? Um, a perfect example um, you guys would maybe remember is like we drafted Henrik Borgstrom mm-hmm. out of uh, yep. Finland back in 2000. Well, the Buffalo draft and losing track of years right now, 2015, 16. Um, anyways, we drafted Borgie. And he came out of the junior level in Finland. He didn't play pro over there because he was going to come to go to Denver, right, on scholarship. So obviously he couldn't play pro. Um, but when we drafted him, he was super elite. And then he fell into our development pool and he went to college. And honestly, if you pulled 25 scouts today about Henrik Borgstrom at the college level, they would have said he's one of the best college players they've ever seen. Like he was unbelievable playing for Jim Montgomery. Then when he arrived on our doorstep at the pro level, there was a missing link and he wasn't mature enough to be out on his own hundred percent of the time training properly, doing some things that it takes to, to become an even better player. And obviously a pro player because the window is very small. So the, it's delicate guys. Like you can be the best player in the world, but if you don't manage the, the development part of it after and be in tune with a lot of what's going on with young kids because they're kids, 18, 19, 20, they're still kids. Like you have to be in tune with what's going on in their daily life every day and, uh, and know that you just an open door policy. And if you need, you know, you need something outside of us, just let us know. So 
I'd like to go back when my career is over and look at Borgie as a case study and see where we went wrong a little bit there. Um, but um, I can say this, I wouldn't have changed the pick at that time. I, I thought he was the best player on the board. This might fall more in terms of a developmental question, but obviously you've been in those conversations as well. The Detroit Red Wings, for the longest time, were famous for letting their prospects over-ripen in the American Hockey League. Is there a fine line that a player and an organization have to walk where you don't leave them in the AHL past their due date before all of a sudden the, the returns become diminishing? Or can you just leave a guy in the American Hockey League and basically in forever now i don't want to say forever but you give him an, just as much time as he needs down there and maybe over ripen you can't do him harm by leaving him down there too long is there a line for that i think there is a line for it uh, i worked when i worked in nashville there was uh, david Poyle always had the uh, he made the statement every year at training camp that every nhl or every nashville predator player uh first wears a, a milwaukee uh mm-hmm. uniform like everything went through milwaukee and, and if you look at it back in there's only a couple of players, David Leguan and I think Ryan Suter, that went right from the draft into the Predators uh, lineup, you know, the year after the draft. Everybody else, including Pekka Rene, who was like 26 by the time he arrived, 25 turned 26, everybody else, you know, took a lot of time to develop in Milwaukee. Has that changed over the years? I'll tell you what I think. I think it's changed because contracts are getting doled out for younger players. Now, remember when the cap used to be, okay, well, he's going to get a bridge deal. Mm-hmm. He's going to get, you know, we're going to move him along. Yeah. Well, nowadays, it's like these young guys are getting big money, right? So it seems like everything has kind of changed where they're not simmering in the minors quite as long. They're jumping and seeing what they can do at the NHL level because, A, they're on a cheap contract. Entry-level deals save you money on your roster. There's no question about it. And then, two, when they do become good enough, it seems like they're getting paid earlier. So, Everything seems to be going quicker than it did even 10, 15 years ago. Just to pivot on you, just a couple more, Jason. Thanks for your time. If you're the Calgary Flames and you are, what is it, February 1st today, you are one month and three days or so, four days away from the NHL trade deadline. What should be the approach for a club that is technically holding down a wild card spot, but also sharing that wild card spot with a team in the Colorado Avalanche that actually hold the tiebreaker? If you're just on the outskirts looking in, what's the approach for the Calgary Flames at this trade deadline? If they're going to be acquiring anybody at the deadline, I think that they'd like to get some more scoring. I think that that's been evident. And, you know, they're looking for more scoring. I believe they call it the left side. But, I mean, honestly, they probably would like to get more scoring from somewhere in the, in the top nine for sure. Um, if they're going to be acquiring a player, though, I, I think that, it's going to be very delicate because a you want to have them on an expiring deal mm-hmm. because Luchish comes off and then you got some other contracts that are kicking in next year, some big money contracts. Um, and then where it gets delicate is that, you know, to, to have a player come in, your teams right now are asking for first and second round picks. Right. And again, where are the flames in relation to sooner or later, you're going to have to develop more players. So you can't just keep uh, you know shoving those picks out the door. Um, they're going to have to give up an asset. And I think there's a couple of assets in the minors really that uh, are going to be targets. I think Joe Wall is a target. I think that he's, uh, you know, I don't know what else the kid can do, to be perfectly honest with you. Like he's done, he's been unbelievable, right? Uh, no, not Joe Wall. Um, Wolf, pardon me. So Joe Wall, Dustin Wolf, me, yep. please. Dustin Wolf, um, pardon me for a sec. And then, um, you know, so I think Wolf, you know, <laughs> and his win loss record is 
asinine in the in in the minors. <laughs> like it's like fifty eight, fourteen, and something. Like it's absolutely incredible. Yeah. Um, and then you look at some of the other guys that are down in the minors. Like what are they going to do with some of these other guys? Some some guys that could be scorers and. You know, like uh, uh, Connor Zary, I think, you know, you don't want to really do anything there with them. Uh, Matthew Phillips, is his name going to come up in, in trade scenarios? I think it would. I'd take a run at him if I were in Arizona and Anaheim, somewhere like that. I'd absolutely take a run at a player like that. So it's just going to be a puzzle because uh, they can't really add term in a deal. And I don't really want to see them give up draft capital. So it's delicate. Uh, Jason, this was a, a whole lot of fun today. Thank you uh, so much for taking us behind the curtain on a couple of things and uh, breaking this all down. I had a blast. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad we put it together. Yes, me too. Uh, there he is, Jason Bukala from sportsnet.ca and the Pro Hockey Group. I always like those little, like, because I, I probably at this point, I'm not going to be a scouting director for There's anyone. still time. Uh, my NHL 23 drafts are just, like, out of this world. But, uh, but beyond that, probably not. So, like, the prospects haven't been driving with Daryl. So you try to get those guys. Well, maybe Daryl's out in a few years like that, that whole balancing act. I'm always so fascinated by all the, the, the stuff in the room that we're not privy to. I'm also curious about the draft versus development, because you'll see so many first round picks that don't turn into anything. And really, if you're drafting outside of the top five, your odds, if you're drafted from six to 32, your ballpark it, you're somewhere around a 30, 30% chance of being a, yeah. a full-time NHLer that's going to play over 500 games. So it's always interesting to me, the draft versus develop argument because the easy thing to go is, oh, he's a draft bust. Well, was he or was he taken exactly where he should have and something happened in his development along the way that derailed the player? Yeah. Super curious about things like that. Yeah. Sam Bennett, I think, is a great example where, oh, yeah, Sam Bennett was a bust. There was not a human being on this planet who was saying anyone should take, or that the Flames should take anyone else other than Sam Bennett. In the, the It was Bennett and it was Del Cole back to back. That was locked that no one was saying anything else. It's just, it's one of those things. Uh, that was Inside Hockey for Calgary Co-op with new product families, member rewards, and sale events. You'll find more quality, more savings in every apartment every day at Calgary Co-op. Time for us to take a break. When we come back, instead of talking about players of the future, we are going to go in the Wayback Machine and discuss Jerome Aginla. The Athletic is putting together NHL 99, the 99 best players in NHL history. Aginla obviously made the list. We will talk about that and a whole lot more in the career of Jerome Aginla with Sean McIndoe coming up next on Sportsnet 960, The Fan. Back to Sportsnet today on Sportsnet 960, The Fan. Peter Klein from Daily Hive, Game Over Calgary, and Couch Potato Diary, along with Aaron Vickers from Daily Hive and NHL.com as we go into the Sports Drive at 5. Brought to you by Calgary Lock and Safe. Unlock your home with the touch of your phone. Upgrade to smart locks online at calgarylockandsafe.com. Very excited to be joined by our next guest, uh, Sean McIndoe from The Athletic uh, on social media. You know him as Down Goes Brown, part of the NHL 99, uh, The Athletic's countdown of the best 100 players in modern NHL history. Uh, NHL 99, not just a great video game, now a great countdown. Um, Sean, thank you for doing this today. How are you? Hey, I'm doing good. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming on. Um, I guess before we get into some of the, the specifics of the, the great Calgary Flame player who ended up in the, the, the top half of this list, uh, I kind of want to uh, get a bit of a breakdown on the, the methodology of, of how this list is put together. Is there an algorithm? Is it a lot of shouting? Is it a video game tournament? Um, how, how do we come across the, these particular rankings? Oh, I'm glad it wasn't a video game tournament. The young guys <laughs> would have 
run roughshod over us. No, this was something where uh, we got together as a group. There were uh, nine or ten of us, and we sort of talked through the concept. We talked through uh, what we were looking to to do, and then we each went and put together our own top 100 list. Uh, we, we threw it all in a little spreadsheet. We sent those votes in. They did an initial tally based on uh, everyone's votes, and then we met again and sort of said, okay, let's do a sanity check on some of this. And if anybody wants to stand up and pound the table for a certain guy who either didn't make the list or maybe didn't finish as high as you think he should have, maybe you think somebody is overrated, they're finishing too high, uh, we can make that case. And uh, we did that, and then we sat down and we, uh, we did our own list again and sent them in, and, and that uh, ended up becoming the final list. So it's, uh, you know, with these sorts of things, it's always... Uh, it's always fun. It always generates a lot of debate, but this is one of those lists. This is based on the, the uh, hopefully informed opinions of, of uh, 10 different sports writers. It's not one of those lists that you see on the Internet sometimes where you can tell that they move certain names around or certain things around just to get you mad, just to get you going. Uh, if you're mad about something we put on the list, we earned it the old-fashioned way. Um, uh, not to go too far off the, the, the Aginla path, but um, was there anyone that you were pounding the table for, either positively or negatively, where you ended up losing that uh, particular argument? You know, I'll, I'll tell you one, and this is, this is a little bit of a weird one, but, you know, I'm, I'm kind of an old school fan. I'm a bit of a, a history guy. I, I wouldn't say I pounded the table, but I did stand up in, in our discussion. I said, guys, how do we handle players like a Connor McDavid? Uh, like an Austin Matthews, guys like this that have already had enormous accomplishments, but they're not finished products yet. And and I sort of pushed back on the initial vote on some of those guys, including Austin Matthews. And I'm a Maple Leafs fan. I, I think Austin Matthews is great. But I sort of stood up and said, you know, if these guys, if their career ended today, if Conor McDavid says, you know what, I've done everything I can do, I'm going to go do something else with my life, and he walks away, is he really in the top 20 or 30 or whatever of all the players who who maybe in some cases played 15 or 20 years and we had the argument and we went back and forth and uh, you know at the end of the day I don't think uh, I was able to sway too many people and and so Austin Matthews is on the list Connor McDavid is quite high up the list uh, and active guys like that are on there but that was the sort of debate we had to have because clearly by the time Connor McDavid's done barring some sort of injury or, or bizarre circumstances he's going to be top 10 probably top five uh, and and maybe even push to be higher than that. But where where do you put him right now? That was a that was a tough debate. So would you say that that would be the most debated player than the Matthews type, the McDavid type? I'm just curious of the retired crew that don't have anything left to accomplish, anything left to prove. Who would have been the most debated player in that sense? Yeah, I don't know about debated as far as when the 10 of us uh, sat down to, to talk it through, but certainly guys who have come up as we've been going down the list um, where there have been debate, uh, either there, there were a lot of... Uh, um, a lot of Peter Forsberg fans out there, a lot mm-hmm. of Sergei Fedorov fans out there, um, and the the guy that uh, really seemed to cause uh, some pushback from the readers was uh, we ended up having Mark Messier. I don't remember exactly where it was, but somewhere in the high teens. Uh, and there were quite a few people saying, this guy's got to be top 10. Look at the numbers, look at the accomplishments, uh, look at the Stanley Cups and the Aura and all of the other stuff. 
Um, whereas, I, you know, I think the rest of us sort of looked at it as a guy who had a, a real high peak for a few years there where it was his team in New York. But other than that, you know, he was he, he sort of was behind Gretzky in Edmonton and at the last many years of his career wasn't really an elite player. Um, but we did get a lot of pushback, and, you know, we, we read through all of it. And i, I got to say I found some of it convincing, and, and maybe if I had the vote to do over again, I would have moved Mess up a little bit higher than I had him. Now to switch gears and, and talk about the longtime Calgary Flames captain, Jerome McGinley. Spoiler alert to anybody who's listening. If this is going to be breaking news for you, you need to get over to The Athletic immediately. Jerome McGinley slots in at number 34. I'm just curious about what you've learned about McGinley researching this project and the, the wonderful article that you wrote highlighting, the again, the franchise face of the Calgary Flames for quite some time. Was there something that raised an eyebrow or something that perhaps you'd either forgotten or just generally surprise you about Jerome McGinley and his career? Yeah, I mean, this this was one where once we had the list of the 100, uh, the next step was they said, okay, does anybody want to put their hands up for certain players and say, I'd like to write uh, this piece? And uh, Ginla was one of those guys that uh, I was pretty quick to get my hand up there because I was just such a huge fan of his, um, you know, especially his, his Calgary years. He was one of those guys where even if, even if it wasn't your team, uh, you couldn't help but respect him initially, and then you know just just grow to really appreciate him as a player. And obviously, being Canadian and seeing him uh, compete on Team Canada was was a big piece of it as well. And uh, um, you know, it, it wasn't so much a case of you know finding out, uncovering some new thing as as it was. I really felt like, all right, I, I wanted to sit down and make sure that. Any brand new hockey fans out there, younger fans, uh, you know, fans who who maybe only remember the last few years of McGinley's career, I really wanted to paint the picture for them of of what kind of guy he was. And and the angle that I took on it was that, um, and and I believe this to be true, that I think you could make a really good case that Jerome McGinley will go down in history as the last truly great power forward in the NHL. And and when I say power forward, I'm talking in the in the sense that we used to mean it when I was growing up, you know, when it was the guys like, you know, for, back then it had been Gordy Howe and then you had the the Wendell Clarks and Cam Neely's and Rick Tockets and guys like that. The guys who were great players could go out there and score 40 or 50 goals for you. But they were also the toughest guy on the team, and you did not want to look wrong way at them. If it was a big hit, they had to drop the gloves, any of that stuff. They could do all of it. And you just don't really see that anymore. I'm not sure it's a part of the NHL. I know you can look at a few guys like the Chuck Brothers would be, you know, be there. Some people would point to Tom Wilson. But these guys who had the all-star level ability um, – and also were the scariest, most intimidating guys on the other team. Uh, I'm not sure that we're ever going to see it again, and, and Jerome again may very well be the last of the truly legendary power forwards that we talk about in the NHL. Yeah, I'm not sure you're going to see too many players nowadays with 10-plus fighting majors in a season combined with 100 points, but before he got to that level, he was acquired from the Dallas Stars in exchange for Joe Neuendijk, and I found this super curious in your article because I didn't know the sentiment at the time Brett Hall's take on the Flames' return was that they, quote, got nothing. Al McInnes, I don't know what Calgary is thinking. When you're digging up those quotes from Brett Hall and Al McInnes, what runs through your mind when you look back at, yes, they dealt Joe Neuendijk, who was a franchise face at the time, but in hindsight, it set up the Calgary Flames for 20-some-odd years. 
Yeah, it did. And I, I guess my first thought was I'm starting to understand why Brett Hull's uh, career as a GM maybe didn't go as well as <laughs> I thought it would. Uh, with, with, and, and look, I mean, we should, do, we should give the context here is that at the time, Brett Hull and Al McInnes were both members of the St. Louis Blues, but they had both been Calgary Flames yes. in the late 80s. They both played with Joe Neuendijk, probably had a, a ton of respect for him and admired him a lot. And, and yeah, there were a lot of fans out there. there Joe Neuendijk, it was time for him to move on from, from Calgary. Everyone knew he was going to be traded. And you know, much like these days, where there's a lot of a lot of guys, where uh, you know, veteran stars who are getting ready to be dealt before the deadline, and you, and you get your hopes up as a fan. You think, oh, we're you know, we're going to get all these draft picks and all these A plus prospects. And when the deal went down, and it was basically, with apologies to Corey Mellon, it was basically Joe Newendike for this Jerome McGinley kid. There were an awful lot of uh, of fans, media experts out there saying, oh, is that really enough? I mean, you basically just traded a guy who turns out to be a future Hall of Famer, one of the great players in your franchise history, and a guy who at that time still had a lot of years left uh, ahead of him. And you get this prospect who's just kind of a question mark. You know, this WHL guy, he sounds like he's pretty good, but, uh, you know, was, wasn't even a top 10 draft pick, all, all of this stuff. Is this enough? And, uh, you know, certainly you, you don't often see guys like uh, Hull and, and McKinnis, players on other teams, offering up their, their views on trades like that. But uh, they weren't completely alone. There were some people who thought the Flames just did not get enough uh, for a great player in Joe Noondike. Chatting with Sean McIndoe from The Athletic on the Atlas Pizza and Sports Bar guest hotline using the same secret recipe since 1975. Dine in at 6060 Memorial Drive Northeast. Take out or delivery at 403-248-3344. I find when talking about all-time greatness, um, there will always be that person in the crowd, yeah, but he never won a Stanley Cup. Um, That's obviously a touchy subject out here with Jerome, but it feels like no one really like people bring that up in almost a sad way with Jerome. Like people, no yeah. one holds that against him. I can't remember anyone else really in like the, the history of sports where you're talking about all time greatness. He doesn't have that championship win and no one holds it against him. It, it kind of really does show what he was able to, to co- accomplish in his NHL career. Doesn't it? Yeah. Maybe, maybe Ernie Banks would be the only other one mm. where people sort of say it in the, in the same way. And, and I'm glad you brought that up because I also wrote the piece on Marcel Dion, who is also who is uh, also didn't win a Stanley Cup, often named as the greatest NHL player to never win it. And I, I just went in on the idea that look, we got to stop with this narrative. We got to stop about you know, you know he didn't win a Stanley Cup. It, we always talk about how oh, hockey's the ultimate team sport. Uh, you know, it takes 20 guys to lift that cup, and, yet, and then when somebody doesn't win it, we point to them as an individual as if it's some sort of failing. I mean, are you going to tell me that Jerome McGinley was not a winner? Uh, a guy who, who dragged, uh, you know, an okay Calgary Flames team all the way to Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Final. A guy who's got a couple of gold medals, who, who creates uh, the overtime winning goal in a gold medal game in the Olympics. Uh, you know, there's only so much you can do. And unfortunately, uh, he never had that talent around him in Calgary to, to really push them over the top. Came real, real close in 2004. But, uh, you know, you're absolutely right. If there was one... Uh, disappointment for me as as a fan watching Jerome McGinley from afar. It was probably that last year uh, when he was in Colorado, and Colorado was no good. And and frankly, Jerome McGinley was you know at at the end of his career at that point, he was not the not the player that he had been. Um, but you felt like maybe at the trade deadline, he's got one more. We want, trade him to a contender, and he's got one more run in him. And we saw it with Ray Bork going to Colorado all those years ago. Maybe this is where Colorado kind of pays it back karmically and, and sends 
ends Jerome McGinley somewhere, and instead they trade him to the L.A. Kings, and the Kings don't even make the playoffs, and, and then that's it. It, it. it just would have been great. He's one of the few players where I think if he had got there, if, if he had had a chance to lift that cup, it would have been emotionally for, for fans around the league similar to what we saw with Ray Bork, which is a moment that a lot of people say you'll never see again. We probably could have seen it if it had been Jerome McGinley. Sean, I think our text line at 960-960 would like to inform you that it was actually in in 2004, <laughs> and that goal yep. should have counted, and he should have had his cup. Another trophy he should have had, maybe. You make the argument a little bit in your article. Hart Trophy, J- Jose Theodore. Was he robbed? Yeah, I, I I think he was. I mean, Jerome McGinley was the best player in the league in 2002. Um, now, the Hart Trophy is not necessarily the best player in the league trophy, although it often is is voted that way. Um, and and I'm not knocking Jose Theodore. He had a he had a really good uh, season for a really bad Montreal team and and dragged him into the playoffs. Um, but certainly that is one there you look back and, uh, you know, especially when you look at the Hart Trophy, and it's just almost always this list of legendary players, surefire Hall of Famers, and, and that 2002 vote really sticks out. And, and frankly, I think that was a case where there are some voters who look at the MVP and they say it's got to be a guy on a team that made the playoffs, but just barely. You know, I think the team can't be too good, but the team also can't be bad. It's got to be that, that right in that sweet spot. And, you know, that's, that's where you get guys like Taylor Hall winning it for getting the Devils into the playoffs. And uh, I think it was the same thing in 2002. And, you know, I, I, don't, I, I don't think it was a complete miscarriage of justice. I'm not saying that I wouldn't have had Theodore on my ballot if, uh, if I had been voting. But when you look back and you say, geez, we had a choice between Jose Terridor and, and Jerome Aguilma, and uh, we gave it to the goalie. When, when we almost never do that, it's almost always an award for forwards, and that was the one year we decided to go to a goalie, and, and uh, Jerome Aguilma didn't end up getting that hard trophy. Uh, I really think that uh, the, the voters would like a do-over on that one. Now, we talk no heart. We talk no cup. The project is called NHL 99, but how much does international competition and Jerome McGinley at the Olympics help figure into ranking him number 34? Yeah, uh, I mean, it, it certainly helps because you, you look at it and it's it's not just about, um, okay, all right, this guy, this, this guy won a gold medal with Team Canada, this guy won a medal with this. The, the fact that he was such a key part of Team Canada, that tells you, how he was viewed as a player in the NHL, right? Because, I mean, they, they, those Team Canada teams, that was the elite, uh, you know, and that was the guys. And if you were not just picked for that team, but once you got there, they said, okay, we're going to put you on a line with Mario Lemieux. Um, that tells you all you need to know about where you're viewed as a player because you know Mario could have played with anybody he wanted to. And, uh, you know, when, when that's who you wind up with or when it's overtime and they say, you know what, who, we need some, we're, we're throwing Sidney Crosby onto the ice. Who needs to go with them? It's got to be Jerome McGinley. I mean, it just gives you the sense of what a, uh, you know, a, a respected and, and uh, uh, player he was, not just by his peers and by the fans and everyone, by the coaches, by the coaches who got their whole career on the line putting this team together to go out there and uh, in a situation where you got no choice but to win. Um, and the fact that Jerome McGinley, that's the shoulder they're tapping to go out there uh, when the game's on the line sort of tells you all you need to know. When you think of the career of Jerome McGinley, is there like one highlight or one moment that, that kind of stands out above the rest? 
you know, to go back to the power forward thing, and, and this is it's a little strange because you're talking about a guy, 600 goals. I mean, we could we could pick any number of goals in, uh, in the NHL and plus the playoffs, plus the Olympics and all that. The moment that I remember, the very first thing that pops into my mind when you mentioned Jerome McGinley is that 2004 Stanley Cup, and it's him dropping the gloves with Vincent LeCavier in an era where, you know, there was a lot more fighting back then, but it never happened in the playoffs, and it certainly never happened in the Stanley Cup final, and it never, ever, ever happened with two star players in the Stanley Cup. You, you just didn't see it, and it's, it's one of those clips where, um, you know, to this day, when you go back and watch it, it's, it's, uh, you almost have to laugh because the announcers are so stunned at what they're seeing. I mean, they just cannot believe that here is Jerome McGinley and Vincent LeCavier just, you know, skating out and dropping the gloves and going at it. But it was that chance to send that message to the fans, to the teammates, everything, get everybody going. And, uh, you know, you, you just uh, you wouldn't see that from very many players. And, uh, you know, obviously we can go down a long, long, long list of players uh, who never dropped the gloves in the Stanley Cup final. But there's, there was Jerome McGinley doing it because, in his mind, it had to be done. And like just about everything else, if it had to be done, he wasn't going to sit back and, and let one of his teammates do it. He was going to do it himself. Just because we're bitter out here and can't let things go. 2002, Jerome McGinley had 52 goals, 96 points. Derek Morris was fourth on the team in points with 34. The fact that that team won a game means Jerome <laughs> McGinley should have won the MVP. Like that, that is a miscarriage of justice that cannot be overlooked. I'm with you, 100%. <laughs> um, Sean, this was a, a great trip down memory lane. Thank you for doing this today. Really appreciate it. Hey, right on. Anytime you want to talk uh, old-time hockey, I'm, I'm your guy. Thank you. There is uh, Sean McIndoe from The Athletic again, joining us on the Atlas Pizza and Sports Bar guest hotline. Um, I've, I've always found that interesting with uh, Aginla, the, the whole no cups thing. Like, um, you'll, you'll hear anyone talking about it, and they're like almost apologetic. Like, yeah, sorry, like just couldn't get you one. Like, everyone just feels bad. And I, I really can't recall too many times where that's happened, like in sports. Is that just because he had to, all due respect to his teammates, he had to haul a lot of quote-unquote dead weight around to get the Calgary Flames to respectability. And as you mentioned, that year, fourth leading scorer at 30-some-odd points. He's yeah, almost quadruple that. Like, that's, <laughs> that, you said it. Like, he should win that award based on just the fact that the Calgary Flames won a game. For you, what is your defining Jerome McGinley memory? Um, the, the fight with LeCavalier is certainly up there. I will always remember when he got to, to 50 for the first time, it was against the Blackhawks. Um, <laughs> they were wearing Blasty and he's coming down the right wing and he just winds up and lets go the slap shot from hell. And I think it was Jocelyn Tebow in net. Um, and, and he just blasted it by him. That, that is always a, a shot I will remember, but yeah, like Fighting Vincent LeCavalier in the, the Stanley Cup final is just unbelievable. So I'm cheating by taking two, but um, that th those would be mine. What about you? Well, that one in particular should be, if it's not, and I think it is, but should be in every sort of role from whatever sportscaster it is, hyping the playoffs where you're talking about memorable, memorable memories from series past. And that was so iconic. The shift was iconic. Yeah. I think that's the easy one. But for me, I'm going to go back to what I believe was his 500th goal, which was scored on January 7th. It was my birthday. I was writing a gamer on it. I got the privilege of writing a sidebar on Jerome McGinley's 500th goal. The only problem was my birthday party was out at the bar 
And by the time I got there, because of course this massive milestone for this icon yeah. had just happened right in front of us, got there after last call, basically DD'd everybody home. Oh, Jerome thanks, McGinley. Jerome. Jerome McGinley, uh, ruining birthdays. Um, one of the things that uh, I worked on um, before I left the first time was um, a, a This Day in Flames history. And there was one significant goal that Jerome McGinley scored. And with all due respect to both other players, the two assists on the goal were um, Horak and Berchi. Roman Horak and yeah, Sven and Berchi. Sven Berchi. I was like, you know what? Maybe they could have either traded him sooner or got this guy a bit more help because, dog, that is not a, a great time in uh, in Calgary Flames history. But yeah, like best flame of all time, right? Oh, I don't even know if it's a like. Yeah. Is it? Is it? I don't think. I think you're just asking to ask. I can't yes. imagine that that would be a serious... Like, who would be in the run? Like, sure, you, Kiprasov, Vernon, Lanny. But, like, in terms of the full body of work, like, I don't know Neuendijk how you... Like, maybe, but not long enough here. Like, I don't... I You're right. Like, it's... Best it is, player ever to wear a Flames jersey... Jerome, or pardon me, Yarmer Yager. If we're gonna, if we're gonna <laughs> right. be able to transport yeah. that, yeah. If we want to do like the, oh yeah, Roger Clemens is the best player to ever wear a Blue Jays jersey, like that, that sort of conversation. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. we're not gonna do that. No, but no. far and away, Jerome Aginla for my money. I don't know how it's debatable. Just like Tom Brady's not debatable as the best quarterback right. of all time, he's the goat. We were talking about it before, and just quickly, I know we're running out of time, but. Um, last thing on the Tom Brady thing, you can divide his career in two and they're both hall of fame careers, 2000, he plays one game. So 2001 to 2010, he wins three super bowls and goes to two more. And then 2011 to 2022, uh, he goes to five, I believe super bowls and wins four more. Like both of those are hall of fame careers and he just happens to have both of them. So yeah, I think clearly the NFL goat. And if we're just going to bring this full circle to go from Brady, Aginla, to the game at Scotiabank Saddledome tonight, Connor Bedard wins the Cup as a rookie next year. I'm just saying. I'm calling Ooh. it right now. You're calling Colorado to win the Central. I'm calling the Chicago Blackhawks and or the Columbus <laughs> Blue Jackets and or the Anaheim Ducks and or the San Jose. I'm not. I'm just tying it all in so that there's a nice little bow yeah. so we can just Fade off into the sunset. There you go. You heard it here first. The Vancouver Canucks are winning the Stanley Cup next year. I didn't uh, say Vancouver. <laughs> uh, this has been the Sports Drive at 5, brought to you by Calgary Lock and Safe. Unlock your home with the touch of your phone. Upgrade to smart locks online at calgarylockandsafe.com. Uh, that is it for me filling in. Um, I... Uh, Based on conversations, don't believe it's the last time uh, I'm going to be filling in, but I didn't get to say goodbye last time. So um, uh, I will just say the response on the text line has actually been overwhelming. I wasn't sure what to expect. It wasn't that. Um, everyone has been incredibly nice to me for the last few days, which is weird, but also uh, extremely humbling. So thank you, everyone. Thank you, Aaron. You have made my job uh, very easy over the last couple of days. And uh, the producers in there are all right, too. Uh, <laughs> you look pretty good over there, bud. Like riding a bike. Oh uh, yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Just like riding an ATV off a cliff. Uh, <laughs> True <lo> story. <laughs> long time, long time listeners will get that one. Uh, all right. Enough about me rambling on. We have a prodigy to get to. It is the Calgary Hitman taking on the Regina Pats coming up next. One hour pregame show with Logan Gordon. We'll have you covered. My name is Peter Klein. He's Aaron Vickers, and this has been Sportsnet today on Sportsnet 960. The fan.